Hey guys, JD Flynn here. This is a bonus episode of CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. In this bonus episode, I'm joined by author and photographer Chris Arnaud. In 2019, Chris published a book called Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. For my money, I think Chris is one of the most important public intellectuals in America right now because he's giving a voice and a face to people who often don't have a voice or people who often exist probably for most people only in stereotypes or misunderstandings. Chris works in what Pope Francis calls the existential peripheries, and he takes us all there. In the next hour, you'll hear Chris talk with me about his book, his faith, and about Back Row America. Here's that conversation. Chris, what is Back Row America? Um, first of all, thank you very much for having me. I'm very honored to be be a guest here. Um, Back Row America is, in my in my simple framework, is the Ameri- Americans, uh, both people and communities, that don't necessarily define themselves by by their resumes or their education. It's the part of America that has traditionally gone from high school to to a job, a lifelong lifelong job um, that gave them the stability to build a family. Um, and then attend church regularly and uh, stay in their, their community. Um, that isn't a red state or a blue state thing. That's true all across the country. It's um, it's African-American communities um, in, in northern cities. It's, it's working class rural communities in places like Iowa and Nebraska. Um, it's in contrast to what I think is the much more powerful group of people, which I would call using the classroom analogy is the front row, the the elites, if you will, who um, have spent their career chasing, a re- building a resume, going to all the right institutions, and ultimately ending up probably in a few handful of neighborhoods across the United States where they, they generally have very large influences in academics, the media, and politics in the business world. And I think so much of how we think about America is is defined by the front row when in fact the bulk of Americans would probably find themselves to be more more familiar with what I call the back row. And with dignity, you you got to know that back row. I mean the story of how this book came together is is seems extraordinary. You kind of walked, it seems, from Wall Street where you're working in finance, you know, at at high levels of finance to parts of New York that you hadn't seen before and, and to talk with people in New York who you hadn't talked with before. How, how did that happen? Yeah, that's the hardest part. <laughs> that's the hardest part of the of the process to really put into short into short sentences to explain simply. But yeah, I, I come from an odd background. I, I have a PhD in particle physics. Um, and then I transitioned from that to being a banker where I was a bond trader in Wall Street. You can think of you know, the movie, um, uh, The Big Short, I guess, or you can think of um, the book Liar's Poker, perhaps, or the, I guess there's a TV show called Billions now. Um, but that was me sitting at a desk in front of a wall of computers trading bonds and, and, and betting on things. And I did that for 20 years and lived a very good life um, in New York City um, with my family. And so I was very, I am very much part of the front row. I have a PhD and but to fill in kind of the gaps in my life, I had always spent time walking, long long walks, like 25-mile walks, you know, on the weekends, so just through New York City, um, exploring um, and 
those walks became, in some senses, they went from being just a way to relieve stress to being a way to learn and see and, and meet people and hear the stories from people who I might not have otherwise met being in my, in my life as a bond trader. And that includes extraordinarily stigmatized neighborhoods, you know, that lead all sorts of lead in statistics that you're not supposed to lead in like crime, like poverty and uh, are generally in New York city defined by being black or Hispanic or filled with immigrants. And those are the places I found myself spending a lot of time in. I happened to be an amateur photographer, so I brought my camera with me. And what became kind of these weekend walks ended up being this project where ultimately I, I quit my job and spent three and a half years, I think, or four years, um, depending on how the time frame. in a, one neighborhood in particular, the, the poorest neighborhood in New York called Hunts Point um, in the Bronx, with a um, collection of, I mean, to use a derogatory term because there's no other terms, of homeless addicts um, who lived in cars or lived in abandoned buildings and lived under bridges um, and spent their time making their money by either being a prostitute or, or stealing things or begging um, and used that money to, uh, to buy heroin. Um, and they became my, the community that, that taught me for three and a half years. And then from there, I um, went in my car across the United States. I put roughly my, about 400,000 miles over four years just driving all the United, United States, visiting places that people would tell me not to go to, you know, visiting as much of the United States as I can, the parts that I call back row America that are not in the news in any other way other than negative towns that have lost their industry, inner cities that have never had industry, all sorts of places. So um, when you tell that story and the sort of opening part of that story is a bond trader kind of deep in the in the Bronx, I, I can't help but think about Bonfire of the Vanities, right? Sherman McCoy, the protagonist of Bonfire of the Vanities, who who goes to the Bronx and and is terrified and, and flees and, and a whole book sort of flows out of that. But that that wasn't, I don't know if you were terrified or not, but you didn't flee. How did that happen? You know, one of the ways I used to structure my walks was I tried to walk, and I did accomplish this. I walked the entire length of the New York subway system above ground. Wow, cool. And at some point, I realized I hadn't been in the Bronx. Um, and it wasn't for out of fear. It was just out of – I was knowing Manhattan. I was knowing Queens. I was knowing Brooklyn. I was knowing Staten Island. I remember telling someone I'm going to the Bronx this weekend. And I, was, I think I was going to the end of the number – if you know New York, to end the number two train and walking home. Um, and my home was basically – the Brooklyn Bridge, right near the Brooklyn Bridge. And um, they said, whatever you do, don't go to Hunts Point. So I had to go to Hunts Point. <laughs> um, so your problem and, is you're a contrarian. Yeah, you know, I've, I've generally discovered in life, both as a physicist and as a Wall Street trader, that if someone tells you not to do something, there's usually a good reason to do it. Right. Um, like, you know, the conventional wisdom is often wrong. So, um, yeah, you know, I went I, I went to the Hunts Point, and it's a, it was a wonderful neighborhood. I was neatly drawn in by the strong sense of community. By and then at, at an artistic level, as a photographer, by it was just simply a great place to photograph because it faces the south. It has good light, um, and then you know it, it just drew me in. And no, I mean I wasn't I wasn't scared. And you know I think that's the hardest thing to explain to a lot of people because they look at New York City and they look at this particular neighborhood as having the highest crime. But people forget when a place has, a, you know, has the highest crime, 
that still means 93% of the people or 94 or 95% of the people are not participating in that crime. The overwhelming number of people are still well-behaved, decent people who, and you know, I'm not saying somebody who necessarily commits crime is not decent either. It's just yeah. that most people play, do their best to play by the rules. And so it's not this place that's completely devolved into chaos. There's a lot of, you know, there's, it's functional. Things are going on. There's a lot of illegal things going on. And so if you live in that neighborhood, you have to learn to deal with that and have to learn to, to navigate the illegal activity. And I mean, there was a lot of strong community going on as well. And so maybe I should have been scared, I guess, but it wasn't that I never felt, you know, I never really felt fear. Um, and uh, that proved to be the right attitude to have, at least because nothing, nothing bad happened to me. Now, I, I you know, I, I, I look, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a large guy <laughs> and I am a guy. And so it's very different to be, to go into a neighborhood like that as a single guy. Um, so I had a lot of advantages, but nonetheless, there was, you know, never a lot of um, bad that went on for, to, to, to me at least. I want to come back to that neighborhood, but there's a way in which it, I don't know if this is part of what you experienced, but there's a way in which coming from front row America and especially probably as we both are, as a, a white man from front row America, there's a way in which it starts to feel like the world is your oyster and there are things that you can do that, that other people are just sort of by disposition uncomfortable doing or, or wouldn't even consider doing. Um, and this is not the kind of thing that that usually applies to, but it seems maybe to fit from that same sort of conditioning or, or perspective. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I recognize that had I not been who I was, I would have faced additional problems. Now, I will tell you that the problems I did get initially were from the police who didn't believe I was there, you know, mm. who, who either wanted to protect me mm-hmm. um, or else couldn't believe I wasn't there just to buy drugs. Um, and so I think you can, you can have that advantage and, you know, hopefully use it in a positive way, which I felt this project was, is, you know, that, that, that being able to walk into these neighborhoods gave me an opportunity to do something that a lot of people couldn't do. And so I took that opportunity. Um, but, you know, I, I, again, I think the, the, the level of fear that people have of quote bad neighborhoods is both misplaced and misunderstood. I mean, again, the bulk of the people, the overwhelming majority of people are decent and trying to do their right. But there's also a way, you know, I, I also at the same time wouldn't tell people just willy-nilly go go try this. I mean, sure. you have to have a certain amount of street sense about you. You know, I don't want to brag, but I, I feel like I know how to navigate different world worlds. And, you know, the, 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 what I always tell people is this combination of being um, confident without being arrogant. And I, I think, you know, the other thing is, is if you really are well-intended, people recognize that. I think there's a lot of people who do nonprofit work and a lot of people in, in the church who, who spend their time in neighborhoods that they might look out of place in, who understand that as long as you're there with good intentions, people will accept that and, and do their best to help you. And so you, you, uh, you, you experienced that, that help and, and that kind of thing, not just, um, not just in Hunts Point, but once you started making the road trip that became Dignity. You started out with a particular kind of community in back row America, but you got to know other communities. And one of the things I appreciate about the book is the similarities, um, the common threads that you find between people, 
you know, rural white people and um, inner city black people and um, working class Hispanic neighborhoods and neighborhoods in the South and in the West and in the Rust Belt. Um, did you expect to find the kind of commonalities that you did as you got to know people across the country? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm still at my heart something of a scientist. And so there, there was a little bit of method to my madness. And part of that method was exactly that. I wanted to see if I had done what I, you know, what, what academics or others would call as a deep dive. I did a deep dive into Hunts Point. I spent three and a half to four years there. Mm -hmm. I got to know people very well. Um, I bury, I helped bury some. I helped, you know, I would visit some in prison. I would visit in jails and I would, you know, <laughs> visit some in detox, take them detox, take them mm -hmm. to the hospitals, get them out of hospitals. So it was, you know, it was a very intense for three and a half, four years. But then I had sort of learned what I, I had come to these, views of mine that this whole experience had taught me. And I kind of wanted to see if, to use a mathematical term, was that translationally invariant? Was it true in Bridgeport, Connecticut? Was it true in, in New Hope, Iowa? Um, was it true in Prestonburg, um, you know, Kentucky uh, or West Virginia? So it became this kind of like, okay, there's this kind of worldview I've come out of this um, about both how we operate politically and how we operate sociologically. Um, and is that true else? Is that just a, something unique to Hunt's point? So, so I did do that and, and yeah, and you know, there's a lot of I, what I try to do in my book is, is both show what is common um, in the, in this condition, but what also help there are variations, so to speak on the theme and how people reflect their their frustration and their and, and attempt to find dignity in, in different ways. What was that? If you can summarize it, what was the hypothesis that you were testing as you as you interacted with more and more communities? What what were the things that you had concluded and, and wanted to sort of find in other places? The first and foremost is kind of the theme of a lot of my book, which is that the divisions in the US is to me that's the most salient and the biggest right now is um is educational divide. Mm -hmm. And we all talk about class divide and we all talk about the racial divide, but uh, I think the, the education divide is as, as important, if not stronger currently. To put it in, you know, kind of provocative terms, uh, a professor of sociology at Cornell, who might be on, very much on the political left, has more in common with a bond trader than he does with a black kid flipping hamburgers in Buffalo mm -hmm. um, and that African-American kid flipping hamburgers in Buffalo might have more in common with the white kid living in a trailer park in um, Texas and have than they do to the people in the front row who in theory support them or at least politically support them. And that, that division is not just about how we vote um, but it's about how we how we view the world and how we how we think about what is valuable in this world and and how we think about what gives us meaning. So kind of at a very deep level, what's our philosophy and and what what's our worldview? And so there was that, and then that the front row controls things now. They generally are the in group. They define stuff, and it's the back row who's the one is suffering from the decisions made by the front row who have a very narrow worldview that they can't seem to, to understand or think beyond. And if they do think beyond it, it usually means they either want to study the back row as sort of a scientific specimen, or they want to pity them and save them without 
questioning their worldview. When you summarize the the worldview of the back row, there's a, a stark sentence. There are a lot of stark sentences in your book, but there's a stark sentence in your book that I think um, cuts through so much else to point to your experience. And it's simple. You say much of the back row of America, both black and white, is humiliated. Can you talk about that humiliation? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's in academic terms. I think most people understand that if you're disenfranchised, if you're kind of in the out group, if you're viewed as profane, and your whole living, your both what you believe in is mocked, thought of as lesser, then that's humiliating. You're you're kind of seen as this kind of secondary citizen. You know, the front row has created this what I call faux meritocracy, where mm-hmm. success is easy to have, as you know. Um, because all you need to do is do the following 12 things, you know, get on, get on our escalator and it, go, it goes up. But a lot of people don't necessarily want to do that. They can't necessarily do that for a variety of reasons. But the the flip side of this you know, meritocracy that we have, where we claim that anybody can just with the right education, make it, make it to the top, uh, make it to the front row is that the impl- implication is that if you didn't make it, it's your fault. Right. That, that you somehow are lacking just because you didn't want to get on the escalator. Therefore, you're, 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 you know, the implication is you're dumb, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, or that you're lazy um, or that you just don't have what it takes. And I, that's very almost like, you know, it's almost an intellectual colonialism. Right. You have to think the way we do right. to be successful. And if you don't, you're a loser right. and to be, you know, I think, and people, you know, people know when they're being laughed at and yeah. people, you know, the front row isn't directly laughing at people. I mean, sometimes they do, but there's this really sense of, again, when they view them, it, it's often viewed as someone who is a wounded, a wounded person to be pitied and helped as opposed to a person to be listened to on and, and, equals. And you talk about some values that are in the back row, some of the reasons, because I think it, it might be hard for people to understand, well, why wouldn't you get on the escalator, so to speak? And, and you talk about some values that, that exist more clearly in the back row, a sense of place, um, a sense of obligation to, to family and people and connectedness. There's a point in the book where you talk about your own geographic transientness. And I think that's true for a lot of people in the front row, sort of one place is the same as another. And why wouldn't you move for the best job or the best school opportunity, the best fellowship or whatever. Um, but, but that doesn't translate into the back row because there's in a certain way a different, a different set of values about even what life is about or what it means or what it's for. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I always use the example of the young woman I met in a McDonald's in East LA. And if you read the book, you'll know that I spent a lot of time in McDonald's mm-hmm. um, because a lot of people who don't have a lot of money spend a lot of time at McDonald's because it has free Wi-Fi and mm-hmm. inexpensive food and, and cheap and, and and you can. So this young woman, this was like near the end of my project, my end of my journeys, and so I knew exactly what she was doing. I would do, I would be there each night to type up my notes, and she was there because you know I've, I've seen her all over the country, variations of her. She was there to use the free Wi-Fi because she didn't have Wi-Fi at home. She her family was too poor. Um, so she would come in every night with her Game Boy um, and her computer and charge both of them and, and play on the Internet or do homework or mostly just play her Game Boy or her Switch or whatever she had. And so eventually she got curious about me and asked and said, you know, you're from New York City. And I'm like, yeah, I told her I wasn't from New York City. And she said she would love to go there. 
And, you know, I said, well, you know, you're college age. And she's like, well, you know, I, I'm going to college here at East L.A. Community College. And I need to stay here um, because I'm my mother's translator. You know, her, her mother was um, Mexican-American immigrant. And uh, like a lot of immigrants, the oldest child is the one who speaks both languages and is, you know, is, is necessary to fill out forms, navigate the country. So she was... Do it. She was making a decision that I think we as a broader culture should applaud. She was staying there for her family. And I've met other, other kids who are doing similar things, who, you know, a child of um, somebody who, whose parents have gone through addiction and are now in recovery. The child wants to be there to keep the parent stable. And the mother needs the, the father or the mother needs the child. So I think, you know, we, we kind of look at people's decisions and what I would call a resume arms race. Everybody has to be building a resume. And mm-hmm. in that process, which is a very narrow way of thinking about success, it's all about mm-hmm. it's all about getting credentials so you can make more money. It's a very, very material definition of success. Um, you know, for people who don't necessarily value, who, who, who don't want to value that very narrow framework, um, you have to give up the non-material forms of meaning like place, family, and, and faith um, because those, you know, those are considered to be um, in, in, in opposition to, you know, this arms race of building the best resume. And so, you know, I think it, it's particularly an elitist view. Of, being material is very much an elitist view of the world because one of the things we're all gifted at birth is – these values and these meanings that don't require resume to have like family, like place and like faith, you know, you don't need a resume to enter the church. You don't need a resume (laughs) to to find, you know, beauty in your local community or to be a member of your family. And Chris, as you you talk about that and and you mentioned faith, especially and that you don't need a resume to enter the church. That's true, of course. And, And I wonder, you have a great chapter about, your experience of visiting churches, uh, sort of back row America churches. I wonder if you could just talk about faith in the back row. Yeah, you know, it probably is the biggest change that occurred to me as a, at a personal level was, and you know, I can I can couch this in very scientific terms, which was, I came into this project, you know, an atheist. Um, I, I won't say I I certainly wasn't a, a, I wasn't a nasty atheist. I was <laughs> very always respectful of other people's faiths and views. But, you know, in the back of my mind, I would have laughed at somebody who was religious or at least, you know, thought, hmm, you know, maybe they should maybe they should learn a little. Um, And then, you know, certainly by the end of it, you know, I I wouldn't call myself (laughs) religious, but I do go to I do go to church. And part of what I had done in the project was, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time in McDonald's because that's where the people I was learning from spent time in. Similarly with churches, I spent a lot of time in churches because that's where people I spent time in. You know, in these communities, sometimes the only functional, you know, the only places that I quote, I say were lit up at night were churches um, and McDonald's. And so I started going to churches and McDonald's and I went to churches. I went to every denomination. I tried tried to go to the denominations that were most reflective of the community I was in. I tried to go to the churches that I guess I think theologically were probably being considered in the back row places that had improvised spaces. So there was one that was a former 
I think it was a former Kentucky Fried Chicken had been turned into a, a church. Another oh. was an old gas station that had been turned into a church. Another was an old furniture store in a strip mall. Um, so I, I went to the, another was someone's house. Um, so I generally went to probably more evangelical style services, but I went to as many, I went to mosques, um, you know, I went to as many places as possible. Um, I try to go, you know, when, when in the community, um, to do what the people in the community were doing. And I, I was, um, you know, came away personally moved by the experience, both as a scientist, um, which is, you know, this was a very important part of people's life. And it was just wrong of me at many levels to dismiss it as any, as, as something more than just a silly, a silly way of, of, of living. Sure. Um, but also at a personal level, I was, you know, came away realizing that there was a lot here that I didn't appreciate. Yeah. The churches that you visited, as I looked, it seemed to me that the piece that, that was most sort of critical for, um, the life of the church um, among the, the back row, wherever you were, was the community that came out of it. And um, you talk about rules, but not requirements, sort of not needing to show up with a resume or have a lot of forms, but a pattern of living that would be helpful or give meaning. And then also to the sense of community that came out of it. Were those the things predominantly that you experienced as being attractive um, of, of churches in, in the communities you visited? I mean, I think that the, from a sheerly pragmatic standpoint, I think that the most important thing about the church is that they get the people they're preaching to. Like, you know, you go into a nonprofit in these communities or you go into these secular institutions and they're not made up of people from the community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, They're often outsiders who have a well-intentioned. There's nothing wrong with that being an outsider who's well-intentioned, but you, with with a few exceptions, most of them haven't gone through a rough life haven't experienced a lot. You go into churches and it's their people, it's their community. It's right. like they, they get them, not just at a, at a intellectual level and also lived reality level. Yeah. It's the classic old academics framework. It's, it's integration, i.e. community and regulation. It's laws. It's, it's a, it's a way to live that gives people guidance. Um, and then, you know, <laughs> it's also answers. Um, that give people a structure. And so I think, you know, I, one of the things I try to do in the book is I think there's these levels, the people, the academics get what I call secular academics when they approach faith, get, they have these different levels of respect, you know, initially it's seen as a pragmatic, you know, the first, the first, the first level of an academic getting religion is uh, at a pragmatic level. They'll simply view it as something that's useful. And I think the second level, which is much deeper and much more real, is, not, is, is to see it as something that isn't just useful, but also powerful and true. Mm-hmm. You know? And so I don't want, I hope in my book that I, I you know, that I, what I, what I, what I, my own intellectual journey was getting beyond the first level of, oh, it's just a useful thing. The right. scientific solution, like, oh, you know, these poor people have religion. That's good for them because it, it's useful. And right. moving on to the next, which is say it's equally valid with yeah. how I think about things. Yeah. I was struck by um, the story that you told about Shelly, the, um, the transgender woman and her mom. Could, could you tell us that story? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, this was early on in the process where I think I was 
I hadn't come to full understanding of the role religion plays. And so Shelley, who is in this book and is a large part of my, of my project in the Bronx is from a very poor working class, white neighborhood, rural town in, in, in upstate New York. And, um, I know her as a transgender woman who is a prostitute and heroin addict in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at some point, you know, I have it always offered once I got to know someone well enough that if they wanted me to drive them somewhere, you know, under the right conditions, I would do that. And she wanted yeah. to go see her parents, her mother. She had a particularly um, bad relationship in her mind with her family. She felt like she was rejected, thrown out of the town for her, for her choice of sexuality and so I took her to town. I took her there, um, small, small town. Um, and there came this moment at the dinner, you know, at, at her parents' house. That, you know, I was, you know, where um, her mom went into a very, what I guess would be, you know, stereotypical, cartoonish, almost um, uh, right-wing conservative um, evangelical talking points about the evils of what Shelley's lifestyle was. Mm-hmm. And at this point I was, you know, getting very uncomfortable and I was waiting for the, the blow up that would happen. Cause Shelley's, you know, she, um, she, um, she can make a bad situation worse through her <laughs> behavior. So uh, I was really prepared for the worst and Shelley didn't miss a beat. She's just like, she's like, well, no mom, that's not how I see the Bible. I see the Bible in a very different way. And it was then that kind of, to put it in scientific terms, my wave function collapsed that I started realizing it was like, oh my Lord, Shelly's very religious and I hadn't, hadn't noticed it. Like she, yeah. she's not a traditional, again, <laughs> you know, what the religion, and I've kind of learned this from my book, from talking to people since my book's been published is there's, there's a hierarchy in theological world and she's not at the top of the hierarchy. <laughs> right, right. And so she, what she has is, you know, it's more than religion. It's, it's, I don't, I think religion's a bad term for it. She has faith. Yeah, she sees yeah. the world and, and she has a combination of the Bible, which she was raised on and which she still reads. Yeah. Um, mysticism, you know, <laughs> um, rumor, all mm-hmm. mixed in with this lived experience of, you know, but she yeah. has her, um, her, her pendant around her neck. Um, that's all I realized had always been with her. And I started thinking back to the time she had asked me to protect it when she knew that she was going to probably be arrested and thrown into Rikers. She would ask me to hold, you know, to hold her necklace because it was, she didn't want to, you know, have it taken away from her. And I started going through my mind thinking of all these other times, you know, like the couple who literally live underneath a bridge. And when I known them, they lived in eight different locations, but each time they had, two possessions that moved with them. One was, um, you know, a poster, a framed poster of the last supper. I don't know where they picked it up, but they had it. And another was the Bible. You know, these two things always, always moved with them. So it was kind of there that I started saying like, you know, wow, <laughs> you know, my understand, my expectations, because I had come in with my expectations that this that a transgender prostitute who felt like her parents had thrown her out of the house would be the first person to be anti-religion. Right. And she wasn't. I'm glad you talk about that um, because one of the things I've been thinking is that the churches that you talked about, yeah, they were mostly sort of um, storefront churches or house churches. And, and, and there's the, uh, a lot of the leadership figures are people themselves who are, 
former addicts in recovery or former addicts looking for recovery. And there's a, there's that connection that you talk about. And, and in the Catholic church, there is, um, there's to be sure a front row and a back row. Um, and largely, um, for the most part, priests and other church leaders come from the front row of, of society, or at least end up feeling much closer to that because they're well-educated and, and finan- more financially comfortable than their parishioners and things like that. And so there's a danger, I think, of um, of a separation between um, people like Shelley, whose faith, as you say, is, is real and palpable and, vis- and visible, and the leadership class of the of the Catholic Church, um, but I don't think that there's a desire for that separation. It's just sort of happened. I think there's probably a desire for what we would call solidarity, um, the sense of being together in community with with each other. What would be your recommendations, or what would be your observations on how people, especially religious leaders who come from the front row or find themselves in the front row, can can build a deeper kind of solidarity with people from other walks of life? I would reframe it as: Look, I think the back road doesn't dislike authority. They would just like the wrong authority. And, they, and I would say that, and I, I'm, I'm not just saying this because I'm Catholic, but I'm saying this because, I mean, partly I'm Catholic because of this, is I think the, you know, the priests who, who, who the priests who serve most people, um, I think are viewed with a lot of respect as the right authority. Certainly that's true of the Franciscans, you know, certainly partly you need to know your flock and, right. I think people live that. I think for the large, to large degree, most priests live that. You know, they listen to their their congregation's problems. They're they're involved with them at a very deep intellectual and personal level, and so I think it's really hard to be intellectually removed from your congregation, and do and you know and yeah. and have um, any authority. Um, so I think there's they respect authority. People respect authority if they feel like it's well intentioned and it gets them and understands them. And I think to the large degree that the Catholic Church has done a pretty good job of understanding the people it serves. I mean, more I, I certainly think more than most nonprofits, you know, secular nonprofits, because there's allowed to be a kind of a, an emotional connection between, um, you know, who, the two groups. Um, I will say, look, I, I also I often went to Catholic churches as well um, because, you know, I consider myself Catholic and when traveling, I would like to go to different churches. And I think one of the things that did frustrate me is I can, you know, I can, I can walk into a church and within half a minute tell you how wealthy the neighborhood around me is, mm-hmm. you know, you know, you can just see by the amount of donations given, you know, I mean, the, the donation differences are just staggering. You know, you get some churches that get collect, you know, 10, 7,000 a week and the others that collect, you know, $35 a week. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's some frustration there in terms of, you know, localism is great. Each, each parish having its own kind of power structure and each thought, but I think there, you know, some outreach between the two groups would be helpful. Um, and I think, you know, and certainly the, you know, the people in the, in the wealthier congregations um, and parishes having a little more understanding of their privilege and how the experience of being a Catholic might be different if you're in El Paso, for instance. Right. And do you think now, I mean, I, I have hoped that one of the things that will come out of this pandemic that we're all experiencing and the economic collapse that goes along with it is a greater sense of solidarity and a greater sense of, if, I think if we experience our own fragility, we might have a better understanding of other people's fragility. Do you have expectations for how things might change for the back row as a result of where we are right now? 
I'm probably about as cynical as I've ever been about it right now. Mm-hmm. And so I hate to hate to hate to try to um, throw water on your fire. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, I, I'm looking at how the pandemic's playing out, and it's becoming a disease of the poor. Yeah. Um, and I'm in this, you know, how all the solutions we proposed, as much as I agree with them, are pretty comfortable for the wealthy and pretty uncomfortable for the poor. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so I, you know, I think, you know, sheltering in place, I think the word place covers a lot of ground there right. <laughs> that we tend not to think about. But I certainly hope at a philosophical level that we we come out of this uh, you know that people who have who who can shelter in a nice place maybe understand that that's a privilege and that uh, you know it's it's much easier for them to do that um you know and come out of this with a greater awareness of how hard this is for a lot of people but i i've become pretty um <laughs> politically cynical these days to where yeah. i'm not sure um you know it's it's kind of like I feel like trying to change things is almost um, it's almost you know localism is still the best bet to go is is to you can't change things at a big level so also oh, what should try. that look like I mean I think most people would not be you know I think having a greater awareness of the of the fact that place is not comfortable for everyone is important you're right but once I know that it does not seem to me that most people who live in the comfortable suburb I live in are going to drive you know, to a, a bridge on Santa Fe Boulevard in Denver and ask someone to come sleep in our guest room for the for the duration of the pandemic. Whether that's a good idea or not, it just doesn't seem to me likely. So what what are the things that with, with a greater awareness, people who are comfortably ensconced in the front row can do in a, in a moment like this? I mean, that's the problem is, I mean, you know, with the pandemic, there's not much we can do right sure. now um, other than recognize that privilege and hopes going forward that we take that into account when we think about judging other people for not doing what we're doing um, or, or scolding, you know, them for taking walks outside, for instance, um, or, or wanting to go to church when, you know, when the, in some capacity, when the, when the pandemic eases, you know, going to some sort of limited service. Um, I think we need to get back to being social again, um, probably before the, before the the credentialed experts tell us is a good time. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think people, you know, (laughs) uh, I respect people enough to be um, enough agency that they can make their own choices Mm -hmm. um, and and see what's right. But, but I think in the longer term though, you know, uh, one of my biggest frustrations with my book, and I think a lot of readers frustrations is I don't offer solutions because I'm not Mm -hmm. sure I know them. And I think one of the things I tried, and so you, to that, to the same question is, you know, I try not to get to political because I think our problems are a little bit bigger than political. It's it's, yeah. it's just a phil- it's it's how we think about the world. And I don't know how you get people in in mass to start saying, okay, we need to value things differently, mm-hmm. you know. And I think you know one one person at a time. You know, if somebody in a comfortable suburb recognizes that their parish or their community or congregation is is well off, and others aren't, I mean that, that that's a first step. And you know let take a personal decision on how to, how to, how do you think you can best address that? But I think one of the things that, you know, um, I think it, it, it's to treat people, everybody you meet with respect and again, not pity them. You know, I think there's this, there's a sense that everybody 
you know, to look, to look at people who are, who are in the back row as, as people who need to be um, saved or, or changed. Um, and, and maybe the best thing to do is just listen to them and, and give them again, the title of my book, give them the dignity of actually treating them like a, like a, an, 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 an equal. And that, that means sometimes not liking them, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, you don't have to like everybody, you know, <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, when people say like, what can I do with a homeless person? I say like, you know, have a conversation with them, treat them like a normal person. If you don't like them, you don't like them. <laughs> you know, <Right. laughs> you know, it's right. like, I'll put it out there. I was very excited to interview you because, as I said, I really, I really like the book. And I like what you have to say. Um, and when I told people I was going to interview you, it was amazing to me how many people started talking about Trump. That they have seen your work through a political lens. And I wonder, ha- has that been your experience? And what is your response to that? Um, I'm frustrated because, um, as you know, over half the people in my book are minorities, right. um, and the bulk of the people in my book didn't vote. Right. Um, yeah, you know, that's, that, that, that's frustrating to me because this book did take place during the election, the project wrapped around the election. And to some degree, I got the book because prior to the election, I predicted Trump was going to win, which I think has, uh, you know, resonated with people. Um, but I, I think the book is political, but it's not explicitly political. I mean, I think anybody who's an astute reader can 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 take the lessons from <laughs> from the book and apply it to the election, um, but I don't try to explicitly jam it down people. Um, right. I think you know. I think um, you know. I I've always said Trump is a uh, is the canary in the coal mine, showing us that there's much deeper problems going yeah. on. Yeah. Um, and that um, he you know he's a tail being wagged. So. You know, it's it's hard for me. It gets it gets me. Fr- it does get me frustrated at a personal level when people say your book's about the Trump voters when it's not about Trump voters. Right, right. And I think yeah. that you know, I think I come from the left politically, and so it was, I think, interesting to see the reaction to my book that was much more positive from the right than it was from the left, which stunned mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Um, and I think some of it, some of the, some of the lessons in the book are inconvenient to the left. And I think they've used the Trump voter thing as a way to just ignore the book to say, you know, it's just about Trump voters. I don't want to read another book about Trump voters. Right. Yeah. You, you, your points about um, your point, your book is challenging to everyone precisely because it's about persons. And so there's no partisanship there. Um, and so your points about the educational, uh, the conclusion you talk about education and sort of the, the sense of uh, education being a solution and those who don't make it feel like they're losers or feel like they're less. And, and um, and at the same time, you know, you 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 see both the systemic failures and the need for personal responsibility. And I guess that's going to take anybody off, which is which is probably a good thing if you want people to to see what's true. Um, thank thank you so much. You, uh, the, the other thing I'd ask you about, you, you talked about the the uh, a change in your own faith or a change in your own disposition towards faith. And Chris, if you don't mind my asking, having gone through this experience, what do you pray for, and what do you encourage other people to pray for? Um. I, you know, my, 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 what I pray for changes based on, I, I, I still get a lot of people who, um, who, who I wrote about in the book who have my phone number and text me all the time. Yeah. So the prayers are a combination of, um, selfish someone's about, about my family, um, and, and about the people I've met who are, who are always going through something. Um, but I think the, you know, 
I guess my, my, my greatest hope from this whole thing is that the reader comes away with an understanding that, of, and it's in, in, in very rare instances, almost everybody who reads this book is going to have more privilege than the people in the book. Right. And so I, I just, you know, a little perspective. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's when it comes down to it is when you, when you, when you, you know, it's the old phrase, you know, before you judge somebody, walk a mile in their shoes. I, 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 I pray that that message, <laughs> you know, gets into people and that they, they can see that they themselves probably have a lot better than they realize. And before you judge somebody, again, know what they've gone through. Well, thank you for bringing that lesson to us. I really appreciate it. Um, before I let Chris Arnott go on this podcast, after people uh, eat their meat and vegetables, we let them have some dessert. So uh, we usually end with a game. Chris Arnott, would you play? A, uh, would you like to play a game with us? Sure. Okay. Fantastic. You write a lot about McDonald's, so okay. we're going to play a game called McDonald's Yes or No, and I'm going to um, I'm going to give you a list of McDonald's-related things, menu items or otherwise. And you just, this is a, like a, like a, like an inkpot test. You just give me your yes or no, your sort of gut visceral reaction to, okay. to what I give you. Okay. So, um, Chris Arnott, McDonald's, yes or no, McPizza. No. <laughs> McDonald's apple pies. Yes. The Hamburglar. Yes. Now this one is rare. Um, I'm glad you said yes to the Hamburglar because otherwise that would have been the end of the interview. The next one is rare. This is a discontinued item that I can't believe exists. Um, fish McBites. Yes, but I've never heard of them, but I like <laughs> the idea. <laughs> well, not that many people did. They lasted one Lent and then McDonald's canceled the fish. Really? Forever. Yeah. Um, but something. And that I thought I had like a PhD in McDonaldology. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I, I'm going to send you something about fish McBites. Something that does last the McRib. Yes. The Arch Deluxe. Yes. Do you remember the Arch Deluxe, the burger? Yeah, I do. Yeah. (laughs) Did you like it? Yeah. You know, I'm I'm all for McPizza. No, man. (laughs) I'm I'm all for, I'm all for most variations of food that McDonald's has presented. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, Grimace. Yes. But I'm a product of the, I'm a product of the seventies. So, (laughs) so you've got to love Grimace. Um, Burger King. No, no. Why not? What is what? Why is Burger King not 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 live up to the hype of McDonald's for you? Um, it's it's the community thing. It's just doesn't oh. have the sense of community. You know, McDonald. I, I always I say this, and people think I'm joking, but I'm serious. I like McDonald's for the ambiance, not for the food. <laughs> Fair sure. And you know, Mc, it, it, Burger King doesn't just have the same sense of community. Fair enough. Um, you're there for the ambiance, not for the food, but there's no way you can say no to this. The Egg McMuffin. Yes. And then finally, my personal favorite, so I hope you say yes, the Shamrock Shake. Yes, but I've never had it. Wow, really? And I will say this. I will say this, that when it comes to shakes, I, I, my favorite, I get a McFlurry every night. Uh, okay. When I'm on the road, I get a McFlurry or a cone every night. Uh-huh. Um, so when I gave up drinking, I moved to McFlurries and cones. But I will say that um, the one time I will cheat on McDonald's is if there is a um, Chick-fil-A, mm-hmm. um, and they have the especially around Christmas they have the the peppermint shake. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Dude, or or the strawberry shake. Yeah, the cone at McDonald's is a great deal though, right? Because it's only a dollar. 
Yeah, um, <laughs> ninety nine cents. Yeah, so that's a, that's a pretty. The annoying place is charge you one oh three. So um, I actually I actually have in my pocket. My used to go in my pocket. I used to keep eight pennies in there because inevitably, you know, there would be the poor <laughs> cashier, the poor cashier who didn't feel like they were, you know, had enough power to, to charge you only a dollar when it was one oh three. Right. Oh. Well, that's smart. That's smart. Um, Chris, thanks so much for this conversation. I'm I'm really grateful for it, and I, I know others will be too. And thank you for having me. And what are you, uh, what's, what's next for you? What are you working on next? Um, I was going to go travel again, um, but with the pandemic, I'm stuck here. So I'm actually writing a screenplay. Um, wow. Really? Just as a, you know, there's so much stuff that was left on the, um, on the cutting room floor, so to speak, from this book. And one of the things I felt like was missing from the book was, uh, you know, there's, it's, it's a pretty downer book, but there's a lot of levity, a lot of humor yeah. <laughs> yeah. that took place. You know, even one of the things that's hard for people to wrap their head minds around is that even in a, if you're living under a bridge, um, there's a lot of jokes being told, a lot of fun. And sure. so I, I want to try to highlight the, the humor that, um, that was, that I saw that, um, you know, I think was absent from some of the book. I, I appreciate that. I, I When I read the book, I thought a lot about David Simon, who was a Baltimore Sun reporter and then did The Wire. I don't know if you know that yep. series. Um, but, you know, one of the things I really like about The Wire is that he is that every tribe has their has their jokes and their style of humor. And uh, and I've got to imagine that's true with the people that you got to know as well. Yeah, I mean, there, you know, some of the, some of the book there, I put some of the, the humor in there. Um, but it, a lot of it's dark humor, which is, you sure. know, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, you know, one of the things that got cut out was a scene um, um, where, you know, again, it's you, you, with the people you're around, you have to adjust your your, your moral framework, so to speak. But, um, you know, someone showed under this bridge to get under the bridge, you had to crawl along a pipe um, for about 30 yards. And I'm a big guy and it was kind of hard to get along that pipe. And you always get dirty, but I remember once being in there around 11 at night, and then someone crawled under the pipe with a birthday cake because someone was having a birthday. <laughs> they had oh. stolen a whole, they had stolen an entire birthday cake somehow oh, from awesome. the supermarket <laughs> and stuffed it in their jacket. That's awesome. And it, and it came perfectly preserved, and then there was this really sweet moment of having a birthday for somebody. Oh, that's cool. You know? So I think those sort of things, I, I, you know, that there is, there is still life going on even in the worst circumstances yeah that's cool i look forward to to hopefully seeing that movie or at least reading the screenplay thanks so much for being on with us and uh and have a great day all right thank you very much bye-bye thanks for explaining chris arnaud is the author of the book dignity seeking respect in back row america it's available online and in bookstores this has been a bonus episode of CNA Newsroom. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Kate Oliveira and Jeremy Kion. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. Special thanks, of course, to Chris Arnaud. And guys, pick up his book. You won't regret it. Talk to you later.